Hello and welcome to a very spooky edition of the Battle Royale with Cheese podcast with me, Monster Grace Williams. <laughs> So we've got a zombie-themed podcast this week in honour of Halloween. I'll be talking to director of Eat Brains, Love Rodman Flender. Um, he's also directed, well, he's a very established director, um, but for the purpose of this Halloween podcast, he directed Leprechaun 2. And I will also be reviewing Zombieland Double Tap, which should have been released during Halloween, but you know, so I'm going to review it for Halloween. And then at the end of the show, I'm going to go through my favourite songs with the word zombie in the lyric. Can you imagine there is more than one song with the word zombie in the lyrics than the Cranberries zombie? But first, it's the week in film history. On October 30th, 1938, the infamous War of the Worlds broadcast narrated by Orson Welles happened. Um, H.G. Wells's infamous tale was broadcast to, I'd like to say, millions, uh, and people thought it was actually happening. 1974, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre premiered in Los Angeles. And October 30th, 2012, Walt Disney purchased Lucasfilm in an amazing $4.5 billion deal. This meant that they now owned the rights to Star Wars and Indiana Jones. On October 31st, you'd have thought there'd be a lot of Halloween-themed anniversaries, wouldn't you? But alas, no, we are... Uh, Rejoicing in the fact it's Peter Jackson's birthday, but also feeling quite solemn in remembering the life of River Phoenix, who died in 1993. On November the 1st, 1967, Cool Hand Luke, starring Paul Newman, uh, was released. In 1997, Titanic was released. And we are wishing a very happy birthday to hereditary herself, Tony Collette. So we've got a director of Eat Brains, Love Rodman Flender. Yes, just to uh, start off, thank you so much for agreeing to interview for my uh, for our little podcast it's really kind of you um i really enjoyed eat brains love at fright fest is there um anything you can tell us about the sort of uh production how how did the idea come about for making this film well it was originally a book it was a young adult novel uh by a gentleman named gentleman named jeff hart and a company called diga optioned the novel and uh, they optioned it from Full Fathom 5, they own, owned it, and then um, a company called Gunpowder and Sky financed it. So that's pretty much it, but it all started with a novel. Um, and was the sort of the, uh, was it easy to get funding for this film, or did you get a lot of people interested in the in the idea? Was it quite difficult sort of to get it off the ground, just for, from a filmmaker's perspective? Well, luckily, I wasn't the one who had to raise the money. Okay, yeah, yeah. That is not my skill. Um, I, I, I'm a terrible salesman. I can barely sell myself. That's uh, that's, and I, I don't mean on the street. I mean like as a director too. Of course, yeah, yeah. I don't mean at a bus station for you know. <laughs> but um, uh, so the financing was in place. Yeah. I came on board. So, um, so I I, uh, I don't know. That'd be a, that that actually be a, a question for for Diga because they like I said they optioned the book and they were the of ones course. To get the money for it. 
Yeah, I think because for um, I think one of the the hurdles, especially as a horror filmmaker myself, is actually just getting. You've got this amazing idea, you've got the source material. It's actually getting people together to actually get it off the ground. So it's uh, absolutely it's really that is always, yeah. especially at at, um, at Q and As. That's always one of the like top five questions um, for a, a, any independent film. How did you get the financing? How did the financing yeah. come? <laughs> And it's not like if you're a doctor, you go to medical school, if, if, you know, if you want to become a plumber, you apprentice and you learn, you know, there is no set formula mm -hmm. to get to, to, uh, to make a horror film. It, you know, every story is unique. And if you look at, you know, even classic films like Evil Dead, they're, they're put together on credit cards and, 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 you know, friends and favors and, and now... Um, you know, people are using Kickstarter and and uh, crowdsourcing. You know, you know, there is no prescribed formula for doing this. Every every story is unique. Every one is different. And is that um, much different from when you directed Leprechaun Two, for example? In terms of horror filmmaking, has it always been the same? Do you mean in terms of financing or in, in terms of like yeah, in terms of I guess financing and get actually getting the horror film off the ground and and into something is, is the is the production process the pre-production i guess more difficult or more easy nowadays well i am i am very very fortunate in that i have not had to um yet uh go out and try and raise money for a movie i've always come to projects mm -hmm. um when some kind of financing had been in place and they were yeah. out to hire a director so um i've had to sell uh scripts I've written. Um, the second movie I did was a movie called In the Heat of Passion, mm. Roger Corman, and that was um, that was a screenplay, and Corman, you know, had has a legendary factory machine in place. He liked the script, bought the script, and, you know, and, and we made the movie. So I am so lucky, because I, I honestly, I mean, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm not kidding when I say I'm, I'm a really bad, uh, uh, salesman, I can cut. Um, actually, you know what? Let me back that up. You talked about horror films. I have had I have had to do that with documentaries because I also make documentaries. I made a documentary, Conan O'Brien on tour, and with that, I shot a bunch of material and then cut together a little trailer and tried to use that to uh, get some financing. That was harder in a way because with the documentary I was specifically trying to capture a moment in time and it's not like oh I could wait three years and try and get some money together that way I was I was specifically trying to capture Conan O'Brien on tour and that tour you know had dates and if I waited six months the tour would have been over and my documentary would not have existed sure. so I, I could not really wait for money to come in I had to go out and, and keep shooting um, with Leprechaun 2 uh, there was a company called Trimark that made the first Leprechaun, and that was a surprise hit. And I think they thought that they might have another Freddy Krueger on their hands. You know, everyone wanted to make the next franchise, next Nightmare on Elm Street. They thought they may have had that with, with Leprechaun. So I came in and did, you know, the first sequel, Leprechaun 2. Mm -hmm. And I immediately killed any hope for a huge franchise with um, with, <laughs> with Leprechaun 2, I think. Actually, you know, they, that, that's not true. I'm being, I'm being facetious. They obviously went on and made Leprechaun in Space and Leprechaun in the Hood and and many, many, many sequels. And there, have, I think, have been now two reboots of the, of the franchise. Um, so it has had its success at home video and kind of direct to video and that sort of thing. I, I, I'm, I'm jokingly saying I didn't, I killed its chance of being kind of the massive theatrical franchise, you know, legend that Nightmare on Elm Street and, and Friday the 13th and, and these other films um, had become. I, I love the Leprechaun films. I got bought the box set, um, gosh, must have been about six years ago and I'd never seen them before. And then I just ate my way through them. I love I, I really, they're so funny and so on point and especially, um, the, I'm a massive Ice-T fan. So yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> but no, I, I, and what was it like to work with Warwick Davis? That must have been something. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, you know, he was in makeup for hours and hours and hours, obviously, before shooting started. Yeah. And he'd come to set and just nail it every time. A, a consummate professional and a wonderful actor. And a after we did that film, I wrote a script 
uh, it was actually a romantic comedy for him to star in because I thought he is such a, a, a gifted actor and a, and a wonderful personality. I mean, it, it obviously it, it shone through all those prosthetics and makeup he had to wear. He's got a beautiful face. I mean, if you see Willow, um, mm-hmm. it's one of the few opportunities you can really see him without prosthetics. You know, without cause, you know he's done Harry Potter films and Star Wars movie. You know, all, all these other things, but he's usually got. Tons of makeup, or he's he's in some kind of costume. Um, he did do uh, a um, with Ricky Gervais. Did you see that show? Yeah, he did yes, that, that, yeah. Uh, that show with Ricky Gervais. So, so he finally, you know, Rick, Ricky Gervais obviously saw in him what I see and what the world needs to see is what a wonderful and expressive um, and and vulnerable and funny actor he really is. And so you um, touch upon using practical effects, and so obviously with Leprechaun 2, it's a, it's a practical effects-based heavy film. And I really like the fact with Eat Brains Love that there was a lot of practical effects. Was that easier or more difficult than using CGI? And do you like to use practical effects more? Well, you know, I'm an old codger, so for me it's easier, <laughs> you know, than, uh, than CG. Uh, I I do like you know obviously you know what there are some things that you have to do with CG and that CG are, is better for you know if you're creating um, you know Middle Earth or well I guess you just go to New Zealand for that but if you know if you're creating a futuristic city or something you know and you're adding on skyscrapers um, CG uh, can be great for that and obviously CG is I think the best for kind of you know removing wires and if you want to show you know, New York in the 1920s, there are still some, a lot of buildings from the 1920s still standing, but unfortunately right next to them or right behind them is some, you know, monstrosity from two years ago that's Mm -hmm. 92 stories tall. So CG can obviously paint those out and give you New York in the era you, you you want it to be. What I don't, what I have yet to see CG really do well um, is blood and fire. And you know what? Maybe I have seen it done well, and I just didn't know it because <laughs> bad CG fire. I look at it and say, oh, wow, that's really bad CG fire. But I, I think it's um, I, I think it's the way I, – I, you know what? It's not so much that the – also that the, that the computer graphics are bad. It has to do with performance and the way people react to them. Um, there, there was a movie uh, – have you heard of this movie called Roar? That was made, I want to say it was made in the 70s. Uh, Tippi Hedren was a lot, you know, she um, had a kind of a lion sanctuary and she made this movie about lions. And, um, you know, her daughter, who uh, whose name escapes me, and it was, it was yeah. in you know, Brian De Palma films, uh, she was in it. And it's all, it's about this family living with lions, with real lions. And this is one of the most suspenseful movies I have ever seen because. You just think they're going to get mauled at any minute, and in fact, many of them were mauled. And the DP, Jan de Bont, who's one of the most famous DPs, has got like a scar on his skull because he was mauled while shooting the movie. And you're watching the movie, and you just see the fear in these actors' faces. And I, I, I saw a revival of it, and then shortly after that, I saw um, Jurassic Park. Uh, whatever the most recent Jurassic Park was, the yeah. Jurassic World. I guess it was Jurassic World, and that is, you know, the state of the art CG. Um, they're creating these Velociraptors, and the actors were all terrific, and the Velociraptors looked good. But there was just something missing. There was just when I when I saw this movie Roar, and I saw people in the same room with real lions. There was this tension that just wasn't there with. Uh, Jurassic World because they're working with you know tennis balls and green screens and all of that so um, that's a very long-winded way of saying with things like blood and fire I I do think you got to go practical I also you know grew up in the 70s and you know makeup artists like uh, like Tom Savini you know, was a was a rock star to me. I was a kid. You know, subscribed to Fangoria magazine, and always every month wanted to see how Tom Savini, you know, blew his head off in Maniac and all that kind of kind of thing. So that aesthetic was something that um, just was just something that I grew up with and, and aspired to recreate. So that was sort of the you know the what we were trying to do with Eat Brains Love a little bit. Yeah. So that um, the canteen scene particularly really churned my stomach was that an easy process yeah (laughs) um 
it was no, it was not easy. I mean, it was it was time consuming and um, and messy, and it you know it goes by fairly quickly. But uh, it um, I, uh, another film that was shown uh, at Fright Fest was uh, a Russian film. Why don't you just die? Did you see that? I didn't um, know. Okay, it's 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 terrific. There's so much blood in it. It all takes place in an apartment, and um, I just saw it at. Uh, I just came back from Vienna, where I saw it at the Slash Film Festival, and the director was fantastic. And, and I raised my hand during the Q and A, and my question was, uh, "What was the cleanup like, especially for take two? Um, that is, with the, as with the canteen scene, um, and I, I don't know. Uh, uh, if this is going out before the movie is getting a, a wide release, but there's a lot of blood as a big kind of our big zombie attack set piece happens um, towards the beginning of the film. So it's not that much of a spoiler, mm-hmm. um, but we did have a lot of, you know, hoses and, and, and uh, real fake blood. Um, none of the blood um, in that scene was digital. Um, I don't even think we remove, had to remove any wires or hoses or anything like that. What you see is what you get. We all did that on set. Yeah, I um, filmed a short horror film in this flat that I'm recording from, actually, and there is still fake blood stained into the floor. So I know it's, yeah. It's very fake, huh? so you claim. Oh, right. <laughs> um, that neighbor that went missing, I heard about that. That's uh, You had nothing oh, yeah. to do with that, right? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, quite a few neighbours have gone missing and a couple of dogs as well. They were pretty noisy. Hmm. <laughs> um, so you've got, uh, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong because I always do, uh, Jake Cannavale in your film. How did that and come plus, about? You, you scored, you pronounced it incorrectly. Did you? So I, I heard it quite fast. You saw him in a, in a play, is that correct? That is correct. He was in a Broadway play called Fish in the Dark that was written by and starring Larry David, who was the co-creator of Seinfeld and created and stars in uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And uh, Jake was on stage with a, a uh, you know powerhouse cast, including, of course, Larry David. And for someone, a young actor, he was, I think, a teenager at the time, to hold your own on stage eight performances a week um, with someone like Larry David, you've you've got to have the goods, and I, I was so impressed <laughs> with what I saw. And then I think it was two years later when we started casting Eat Brains Love, and I, I uh, saw his name on the list, and and just it was like bingo, you know that he I, I saw him on stage, he was great. Uh, we, we were lucky to get him. The rest of the cast was more traditional. Um, they auditioned. Uh, Patrick Fabian, who plays our bad guy, um, horror fans might know him from The Last Exorcism. He's on a show called uh, Better Call Saul, which is a spinoff of Breaking Bad, and I love love Breaking Bad, love Better Call Saul, and he plays a um, kind of complicated character on, on Better Call Saul. So I, 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 I didn't want... You know, for our our evil government um, bad guy, I didn't want you know the stereotypical kind of uh, uh, mustache twirling you know evil dude. Uh, Patrick Fabian is is all charm. You know, he's like a politician. He is. He's he's like a politician that way, and that was you know what I was looking for with that character. Yeah, that was um, when I was watching it. I I was. Um with a few other reviewers and we were um, making comparisons to warm bodies. Um, There was something about this cast of teens that had a sort of more realism and more maturity. There was less pretentiousness with this cast and it actually then in that way made it more of a uh, personable and um, heartfelt story to me. Is that fair to say or is that, I hope that's a compliment. Well, I'll take it as a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I, was, I, I did like warm bodies and to sort of, um, uh, it's interesting you say kind of heartfelt because I, I kind of wanted this to be nastier than, than, mm. than bodies. Like if, um, you know, if, yeah. if warm bodies was the Beatles, I wanted this to be the sex pistols. Uh, I wanted to kind of, you know, have a harder edge, but, uh, and be a little more punk. Um, where, you know, whereas I thought warm bodies was, was was warm was kind of warm mm. fuzzy again not to take away from that film that's just kind of what that was and what we were trying to do um, I guess love to differentiate it a little bit but if you empathize with the leads that's always it doesn't really matter that's always kind of the you know the goal 
Yeah, I guess with the Sex Pistols, their their angst was sort of more real stuff. I mean, it was a very short-lived career, but if you compare it with like the Beatles' troubles of oh no, we can't, we we need to find the bigger sound and stuff. I I kind of yeah, I like that comparison. Yeah, there's something raw. I guess to to the performances and the characters there, which I really enjoyed. Um, or in your face, I think. Yeah, yeah, completely. And it was so this, the script was so funny. Was was that you and um, and collaborators, or some, who who was the scriptwriter predominantly? Um, uh, Mike Hero and and uh, Dave Strauss were hired to uh, adapt the novel. They wrote the first couple of drafts, and then I kind of ran it through my own director's typewriter to one um, uh, bring it down in scope a little bit uh, one of the things um, one of the reasons why I think I got the job was because I had done a number of low budget movies for uh, for Roger Corman who you and your listeners may know is legendary American uh, independent movie director producer uh, so I, I kind of knew what you know what could be done on the budget that we, we were given um, and in doing so, some of the uh, probably some of the sicker jokes, maybe a few of the more political jokes, um, could be attributed to me. I, I don't know I don't, <laughs> what what was mine, what was there, but but certainly Mike and David wrote the script, and they they were the ones who really um, uh, took this very big, very am- ambitious novel, which is part of a series of books actually, young adult books, and really structured in, into a screenplay. And um, did the actors have room to, did they improvise or did they generally stick to the script? Because I, I know in comedy a lot of the time people improvise around the script or was it? You know, I've heard that and I haven't had really that much experience with that. Um, we didn't really have that much time to do it. Uh, sure. And it's it's uh, it's interesting, you know, I directed... Um, the American, a uh, couple of episodes of the American version of The Office, and everyone thinks, oh, there m- must be some Im- improvisation going on there. It's so, you know, loose and, and faux cinema verite. And the fact is, every um, every pause is tightly, tightly, tightly scripted. That is one of the, every joke, every, that is like one of the most tightly scripted shows I've ever worked on. Once they got the, the script as written, if there was time, maybe they would do a few alts, a few alternates, and the actors had an idea. But if if it seems very loose and and improvised, whether you know it was like The Office or or, or Eat Brains Love, um, most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's really tightly scripted, and it means the uh, the actors are are doing a great job if they can pull it off and actually make it seem like it's spontaneous and improvised. Uh, so that that attests to uh, Jake and Angelique and Sarah Yarkin, who plays Cass, their skills as actors. And and you've just touched upon about your other um, directorial work, which is an, an amazing career. Do you always find yourself... Thanks, Mark. Of... <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a really... I, I'm going to be really cliched. It's a very impressive IMDb, but, you know, it, it really it really is. But uh, do you always find you're, you kind of go through a... Um, a phase of, of doing directorial work for TV and then you go back to horror as your, is that your first love? Uh, well, I guess, I guess, uh, literally horror is my first love because I, yeah. as a kid, grew up watching that on TV and, um, and my first, first thing I ever professionally directed, uh, was a movie called The Unborn for Roger Corman and that was a straight up horror movie that was not really, I mean, it had a little humor in it, but it wasn't. You know, like um, Eat Brains Love, or Idle Hands, or Tales from the Crypt, or any of the more comedic horror stuff. Um, but I, I don't know. I have a very uh, e- eclectic and um, wide uh, range, which I think is to my probably to my uh, agents' dismay because they can't brand me. You know, it's it's <laughs> going back to sales. I'm a hard sell because. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not the horror guy or the comedy guy or the the documentary guy. I'm, um, and I don't seem to, you know, I, I, I do. I bounce around. Maybe it's, uh, I, you know, I have ADHD, and I can't focus on any one. I get restless. I can't even finish the sentence. I didn't even finish the sentence right there. <laughs> proof. So, so um, once, uh, you know, once I'll complete a documentary. 
um, the Conan O'Brien documentary. That that was so difficult, and and I I photographed that and I edited it. And it was kind of a one man band production. I'm very proud of it. It's like you know, obviously one of the closest things to my heart because because I, I did do it all. But I after I completed that, I just wanted to work on something that had a call sheet. And that had actors that knew their lines, and that had you know something, you know a script that 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 I could that that I could follow and have collaborators and have help. And then when I'm doing a horror movie and uh, and the the blood effect isn't working, and we're you know the sun is going down, and we're losing the light, and um, I'm pulling my hair out because I don't know how I'm going to complete this scene in 20 minutes. I think oh if I could just carry a camera around and shoot documentary style whatever is there you know the i guess it's the grass is always greener right um so uh so i i, I do i i love it all and um I, you know I, I feel very fortunate to have been given the opportunities that i've been given i'm gonna end this interview on a really tough question um what is your favorite horror film of all time oh that's that is that's a that is a very, very, very difficult question because you know I have, I have you know favorite directors you know sure. who have loads <laughs> of work you know George Romero and and Toby Hooper and David Cronenberg and Dario Argento and you know we could we could talk for hours about this. Um, so uh, 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 I, I guess the one that I keep. That, that I never get tired of watching is Night of the Living Dead, George Romero's original, uh, black and white, 1968. Um, but how can I not talk about Psycho, you know? But how <laughs> can I, you know, it's like, how can I not talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I mean, these are all, uh, so I'm copping out. I'm copping out of this difficult question. I, I do that all the time. Uh, quite a lot of my guests sort of go, oh, can I do a top five instead? And they're so it's like, okay, fine, you can do a top five. That's fine. I have to, I change my top ten horror films sort of monthly. So I know it's a difficult question, but it's interesting to know what inspired you and inspires you. And so, thank Hold you so it. much. You get repulsed. You get. Does it, I'm sure you get Night of the Living Dead and, and all the ones I answered: Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, I guess one that maybe doesn't get enough love on on these top ten lists or. Uh, everyone's favorite lists that, that I'll give a, uh, a shout out to is Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which he made before Rosemary's Baby and uh, is, is one that, again, I keep coming back to. I think, um, I think it, it, it's brilliant. Have you seen it? Catherine Deneuve going crazy no. alone in an apartment. Okay, well, uh, now you need to see it. Yeah, Repulsion, um, Roman Polanski pre, right, right, right before. It was actually, I, I think, because of Repulsion that he got to direct Rosemary's Baby, that, you know, big Hollywood studio hired him to direct, to direct Rosemary's Baby because he had done this um, little European movie called Repulsion, which all 90% takes place in an apartment with Catherine Deneuve just losing her mind. So when uh, when can our listeners expect to see Eat Brains Love, uh, I guess, here in the UK, but also in the US and worldwide? It is um, on the... Festival, festival tour, festicle, testicle tour, the, the fest, fest, testicle festival tour. And if you see the movie, you'll may know why I made that um, Freudian slip. Uh, it, uh, we, um, it's opening, I don't know when will this podcast uh, air, because uh, it's October 8th. It's going to be the opening night of Screamfest LA in Los Angeles. Uh, there might be a few other festivals bubbling under the surface there. Um, but we'll know for sure, uh, you know, before the end of the year, um, where you know uh, where it'll show up on streaming platforms, and and that uh, I think they're, uh, the the distributors Alter is, Gunpowder and Sky is is the distributor, and they have this horror brand Alter, and this is uh, one of one of the Alter films, and they're they've got a great slate of movies. Um, very good company, and they've been getting them out, you know, on the all the streaming platforms. So we'll know we'll know by the end of the year. So keep your keep your eyes and ears peeled. Amazing, yeah. Um, I hope um, if our listeners have seen it at any festivals worldwide, please uh, tweet about um, Eat Brains Love. Please share any positive, wonderful comments about it because it really is a fantastic film. I've been spreading the word about it as far as I 
can. So thank you. And thank you so much um, for doing this today. I really appreciate it. And um, best of luck with the rest of the festival tour. Why, thank you, Grace. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your, uh, your support and enthusiasm. It means a lot. So thank you. One zombie film to another. This week saw the release of Zombieland Double Tap, the sequel to Ruben Fleischer's Zombieland, which was released in 2009. So Zombieland Double Tap is set in 2019, a whole decade after the original events of Zombieland. Uh, nothing much has happened. The old gang is still together and they're living in the White House. Zombies have evolved. There's good ones. There's bad ones. It's sort of quite generic stuff, really. Um, and some people have aged a lot. Some haven't looked like they've aged at all. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg still looks like, um, he could be Simon Amstel's cousin. And... We have an Oscar-worthy cast now, 10 years on, so we've got Oscar winners and Oscar nominees now. So there's a lot of new characters in this film. Um, we've got Thomas Middleditch and Luke Wilson added to the cast. I won't reveal who their characters are, as well as Rosario Dawson, which is adding another extra star power um, to the cast. Zoe Deutsch, uh, who you might know from Everybody Wants Some and why him maybe uh she uh is a real wonderful comedic actress in this she plays a character called madison who um uh injection into the cast was fantastic because it meant that it wasn't sort of the same old um tricks and um relationships and dynamics and um, her character was uh absolutely hilarious she plays um can I use the word bimbo? I'm going to use the word bimbo. She plays a blonde bimbo named Madison who is uh, stuck in a Kim Kardashian uh, 2009 phase. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character Columbus finds her in a shopping mall and she is definitely the opposite to the rest of the Zombieland crew. And she is there for most of the film and she just adds a different level of comedy and uh, comedic timing uh, which makes the film a lot more different from the first one which I really enjoyed. This film managed to do a lot with the budget that it had so it had around about 46 million dollar budget which actually these days isn't that much to produce a, a mainstream or a blockbuster film um, if you compare it with something like World War Z um, which had a 200 million uh, dollar budget 46 million isn't really that much uh, for a zombie movie especially and sometimes it does show so the um, all the shots of the White House and quite a lot of the compositing and the scenery um, aren't amazing. But then I guess the cast probably cost more this time around. And there are a lot of um, pyrotechnic explosions as well. So it, it all adds up in that way. Woody Harrelson is a real pleasure to watch on screen. There's just something so natural and charismatic and earthy about him that he... Although he kind of plays the same person in all his movies, he kind of doesn't as well. Um, and in this, um, I think, I, th I think the the great thing about his character is that there is a sort of air of not mystery, but he we don't really know a lot about his past. And I think actually, out of all the characters, his is uh, even though it's a comedy, his is the most grounded and. Um, the most relatable because I think in the first zombie land there's a flashback to um him and he's got a cute puppy or something and um that's why he's his world's fallen apart but actually it, it kind of hints to the fact that maybe he had a uh a, a 
family of some kind um, before the zombie apocalypse and so when he's searching for Twinkies or he's got to search for Graceland and also his relationship with Little Rock played by Abigail Breslin and sort of having that father-daughter connection um, I think it's obvious that he out of all the characters is trying to uh, find something to fill that void so um, I don't think this film would have worked without his character being focused on and developed in such a way. Now, was this film a good film? Yes, it was. It was well-written, well-acted, well-structured, funny, um, great horror, great zombies, everything. But was it a necessary film? Now, Zombieland has stood the test of time. It is a a much-loved film. It's a much-loved zombie film and it's actually listed in many sort of top 100 films you have to see lists. So much like in the way that Anchorman 2 was a great film and I enjoyed it very much, I don't think Zombieland Double Tap was necessarily a, a, a film that needed to be made and it it was kind of throwaway, dare I say it. Um, and... Yeah, I think it just sort of reflects this, still this trend of what people want to do with films. It's just, oh, let's just make a, a sequel. Let's just make a prequel. Let's just reboot. Just stop it. Just make an original bloody film and leave it alone. Thanks. So here it is, uh, songs with the word zombie in them, uh, not specifically film related, that would have been quite a task, uh, but I've done my bloody best. So uh, the first on my list is the most famous zombie song, it is Zombie by the Cranberries. It's 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 a, a horrific subject matter, I wouldn't say it's a... Um, a horror specific subject matter. Um, I wonder if anyone ever really listens to the lyrics in that song apart from the zombie, zombie, zombie bit. But we're just going to play the zombie bit for now. Next up, we have Ozzy Osbourne and his sumptuous tones for the song Zombie Stomp. What is a zombie stomp? Have you ever done a zombie stomp? Let's find out. On the subject of a zombie stomp, I am giving a shout out to the composer of this uh, podcast theme and frequent guest Lee Christian with his electrifying song zombie dance moving on to a completely different style of music did you know harry balafonte had a song about zombies well you do now this song is called zombie jamboree and it's the happiest zombie song i've ever heard back to back belly to belly at the zombie now this next song is from White Zombie, which was Rob Zombie's band. Rob Zombie is a horror film director in his own right. Uh, credits including House of a Thousand Corpses and the reboot of Halloween. Lots of their songs have zombie in the title, so I've gone with I Zombie. This isn't the theme to the show. Remember Ken Craft's pumping dance track Zombie Nation? Well, you will remember it now. Sorry! Fuck. 
finally, here are the sexy tones of uh, Dave Gahan with In the Dead of Night. It mentions some zombies in it. We are the dead of night. We're in the zombie room. And we have a bonus Halloween review for you this week. Uh, the film Countdown has been released for Halloween. Um, I always find it very weird that uh, films, horror films specifically for Halloween, they don't really release any amazing um, epics anymore. It's always just a sort of low-budget, throwaway horror film. But yes, it is out there. Countdown, um, the critics aren't loving it. Uh, audiences aren't loving it considering I went to a screening yesterday and there wasn't a single person in the cinema but I'm going to review it anyway because you know what I didn't think it was that bad so this film was written and directed by Justin Deck uh, he's not a first time director but this is his first uh big budget feature as far as I can tell and the film is uh Final Destination meets The Ring. So it's about an app that you can uh, download and it will tell you approximately, well, not approximately, exactly when you're going to die. I had a similar, found a similar website when I was little, so the concept wasn't new to me. But when you, in the film, when you download this app, um, you actually die when it says you will die. so good concept a lot of continuity errors in the film um but that is to be expected because it is a horror and only the greatest of horrors uh make a perfect uh world so let's dive into it a bit and before anyone mentions it yes i was very disappointed that uh not only carol vorderman wasn't in this film but the countdown uh conundrum theme was not present so this film um, was actually, the plot was quite good. I was a bit uh, worried at the beginning because it opens up with a group of uh, teenagers sitting around a table uh, drinking out of red cups and they're like, yeah, let's let's download this app and we'll turn this into a drinking game and whoever's going to die first has to drink all the drinks. And I was a bit worried, but then the plot escalates and we're then taken to a hospital about a couple of weeks later and um, the story focuses on a girl called Quinn who is just finishing her nurse training. One of her patients um, who is linked to the beginning segment dies because of this app and she downloads the app and she also has a very limited time to live. So what I liked about this film is it didn't take itself too seriously, uh, but at the same time it understood the parameters of its world. The uh, monster, uh, the big bad, didn't have too many ridiculous abilities um, and it, it kind of manifested itself in a similar shape each time. It had a, The film had a good balance of comedy and horror and heart, which I also really enjoyed. And also the lead... Um, the lead characters were really believable and likable to watch. Elizabeth Lale, who plays Quinn, uh, the lead, the leading lady, um, this is her first major feature as far as I can tell. She has done a lot of TV before, including being in Once. Um, but she was really watchable, uh, good actress, uh, re- interacted really well with her co-stars. And um, it kind of, she reminded me of... Uh, the lead in Drag Me to Hell as well, the character of the lead in Drag Me to Hell. It actually had quite a Drag Me to Hell sort of tone, actually. So, yeah, it's a final destination meets the ring meets Drag Me to Hell. And I don't know if this is because I watched the film in an empty cinema at 11 o'clock at night, um, but 
I was genuinely scared at points with this film. The creature design was quite scary, the concept of the app was quite scary, the, the push notifications of the app were jarring. Um, I liked how they um, integrated the, oh, we need to go to um, an exorcist or a demonologist and make sure that we can execute the demon, but it wasn't like so much of the plot. Um, and I just thought it was a well-rounded movie, getting a lot of one and two star reviews um, unnecessarily. Um, I guess it's got a lot of competition for Halloween, so Joker's still uh, riding the box office as is Maleficent. But um, not, a, not a bad little Halloween horror movie, actually. So I recommend going to watch it. So as ever, I urge listeners to please send me your film news, your shout outs, your film related news. I will plug whatever you give me on this show. And this week, I am really happy to plug the new release from one of my favourite DJs, Theoretical. Um, Theoretical is an Oxford and London based DJ who works with the awesome rapper MC Half Decent and uh, Theoretical has released a record called Music To Be Murdered By. Um, Theoretical is a huge horror film uh, fan and all the uh, tracks have got an underlying sort of Alfred Hitchcock theme that take in ideas um, from other horror films. So on this uh, release, we have got uh, rappers Inspector, um, who is a London-based rapper, uh, South African rapper Roe, uh, who I believe lives in the UK, and also Half Decent himself. Uh, and uh, this track I'm going to play you is an amazing uh freestyle rap which Half Decent did where he tried to uh, include as many Alfred Hitchcock film references as possible. Let me know what you think. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? My name is Alfred Hitchcock and this is Music To Be Murdered By. A story of London fog Bon voyage goes a family plot Learn my lesson by Gino in the paycock Let's throw in the lodger, why not? I confess we were strangers on a train But I had a great day with Spanish Jade The princess of New York, rich and strange But Elstree's calling got in the way The skin game played by Lord Seamus Ladies, a beautiful pair Rebecca and Mary jump Woman to woman is scary Marnie made me make her Larry Love's boomerang and elastic affair The Bonnie Beer Bush was after the fair I said I would send a letter On the waltzers from Vienna But Topaz got the better And stole the moment Forever, the birds flow through that torn curtain. The north by northwest, we're pouring bourbon. Appearances from the call of youth. It's not the truth, I don't know what to do. The pleasure garden is where the proofs fall in. Number 17, just knock on the door. Free life ghost down mystery road. Rear window gave her a go. The secret agent got on the lifeboat, had to go, so he grabbed that rope. The trouble with Harry is he's the wrong man. The max man and the tax man have the facts man. The man from home, the man who knew too much, a true psycho. All he done for love, a passionate adventure, left them empty. A fine generation left in a frenzy, spellbound, without a shadow of a doubt. My sound takes over the town Blackmail, champagne and sabotage All goes on inside the black guard No need to hide all those dangerous lies It's all downhill when you get stage right Tell your children, always tell your wife The ring belongs to the farmer's wife Found by the mountain eagle at night The white shadow is what kept her from sight Lady vanishes, young and innocent Number 13, find it imminent Mr and Mrs Smith had a suspicion The Jamaica ring was a little bit different Foreign correspondent and saboteur Notorious under Capricorn The paradigm case is all we have left Oh no wait, there's 39 steps To catch a thief Oh, M for murder, easy virtue, this is murder To catch a thief, oh, M for murder, easy virtue, this is murder We all go a little mad sometimes Boogeyman is real, and you found him My name is Theoretical Music, music to be murdered by <laughs> We all go a little mad sometimes The Boogeyman is real, and you found him Music, music, music Music to be murdered by. 
So if you liked that and then you will love Theoretical's new release. Uh, you should go over to his SoundCloud and MixCloud pages. I will put the links uh, in the hosting websites. Um, if you are listening to this podcast on Apple or Spotify, you can find this release on mixcloud.com forward slash theoretical or on soundcloud.com forward slash theoretical hyphen two. If you didn't understand that, that is because I've got a bit of a cold and some letters are sounding much like the letter D instead of their intended alphabet letter. Thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen, and I am wishing you a very happy Halloween. Halloween. See you next week. <laughs>